and even just looking at Aboriginal women today, like we're fierce, we're always at the front of protest, we're always at the front of change, we're always at the front of, of movement and energy. You can't tell me that that hasn't been happening for the past 250 years. <laughs> like, I'm not buying it. Welcome to Sisteria, a podcast about women and non-binary creatives and their experiences creating and consuming arts and culture. I'm your host, Steph Van Schild, and today's episode is one of those last but definitely not least situations, as it is the final episode for this season, but I am absolutely thrilled to have been joined by not one but three incredible guests to discuss their contributions to the poetry collection Firefront, First Nations Poetry and Power Today. Alison Whitaker is a Gomorrah poet and law scholar. She's also the editor of Firefront. Alison is a research fellow at the Jumbunna Institute and between 2017 and 2018, she was a Fulbright Scholar at Harvard Law School where she was named the Dean Scholar in Race, Gender and Criminal Law. Alison has released two award-winning books, Lemons in the Chicken Wire and Blackwork, and we'll provide links to those in our show notes. Alongside Alison, I was joined by Firefront contributors Malaika Gesafetafehi and Laniuk. Malaika is a proud Torres Strait Islander and Tongan storyteller that takes many forms. They perform poetry, write criticism, breathe life into worlds. They've written for Overland, The Big Issue, The Saturday Paper, and several publications, both at home and internationally. And Lani Yook is a writer and performer of poetry and short memoir. She contributed to the book Colouring the Rainbow, Black, Queer, and Trans Perspectives in 2015, and poetry collections such as UQP's 2019 Solid Air and, of course, Firefront. She's currently completing her first collection of work to be published through Magabala Books. These three guests were so incredible. It's really a special episode and I hope you enjoy it. We covered practices and protocols of writing as an Indigenous poet, the contradictions and complications of using the English language, and advice on how to maintain positive collaborative relationships. There's also a couple of cute cameos from Malaika's little sister who truly steals the show. I started off by asking the guests to introduce themselves and let us know where they were calling in from. Sure, I'll go, I'll go, no shame. Um, Yama, um, I'm Alison Whitaker, I'm a Gomorrah woman. Um, today I am recording from Gadigal and Wongal country and want to take this chance to acknowledge their elders and ancestors uh, who never ceded sovereignty over this place uh, and who continue to govern our engagement here. Um, hi everyone, um, my name is Malaika Giso Farafehi, also known as Vika Mana. I am speaking from Yagara land um, in Minjin, Namiyanjin. Um, I also want to acknowledge this is unceded um, territory and I am on stolen land. Um, yeah, is there anything else that I needed to say? Oh, who I am? Uh, I'm I'm uh, from the um, Zagareb and Dawareb tribes from Maryland um, in the Torres Strait, also known as Venice Care. 
um, and I'm also from Tonga, um, from the village Whahepa. My name is Laniok. I'm um, a writer and poet. I'm Latakia Kungarakan and Gurunji, which is Latakia being Darwin area, Kungarakan being my grandmother's country, the neighboring country, and Gurunji out in the desert. Um, I'm calling in from Wellington in Aotearoa, um, and it's been really interesting um, being on this stolen land and, and seeing the similarities and the differences and now being um, a settler in some regards and complicit in the colonization of this land, sort of reflecting on that and my role here and my responsibilities to that. So I thought I'd start with the very basic question of how did this collection come about? It's an incredible book. I loved reading it, um, as challenging as a lot of it is as a white settler. Um, how did it come about? Alison, did you want to answer? Yeah, of course. Um, so UQP approached me um, to effectively put together an anthology. Um, they approached uh, a couple of mob before. So there was, um, I understand they'd also approached Ellen Van Nieven, who maybe this is jumping the shark, but they'll be putting together a uh, short story equivalent collection, which I am very, very excited for. Um, so the collection was kind of, um, UKP approached me for something that purported to be kind of a history of First Nations poetry, and I knew I wasn't the person for that. Um, but something that did interest me was putting together something that demonstrated, um, I guess, kind of like the precedent from which this renewed interest in First Nations poetry was building um, to kind of understand the, the moment of um, I guess, like power that we're having at the moment and, um, and also understanding where it came from so that we can see kind of where it's going to go and what our responsibility to tend to the future fire of First Nations poetry is. Um, so that is how it came together. It's necessarily um, an incomplete collection, um, but it does its best to kind of tell a small story story about how First Nations poetry is and how it came to be where it is today. And it's, is it 53 poems altogether? 50 something and five essays? And five essays. So they're all, um, the poems are grouped together into five little, I guess, mini books to, to demonstrate the relationships that our poetry has with one another in building kind of a um, collective Black public response in verse. Um, and then, yeah, I invited uh, five essayists to, to come and respond to those poems, to, kind of to acknowledge that um, sometimes poetry is accused of just being for poets, and that may be the case outside of Black poetry, but that the poetry is built for the community, has an enduring relevance to our politics, public life, private life. Um, and I wanted to demonstrate kind of that that big collective response. Um, and so I think the essays do it really effectively, especially uh, Chelsea Bonds, which um, was a real highlight for me. Lani, you were nodding along. Do you agree with that? How did you feel when you were approached to have your poem in this collection? I was so excited. I was so stoked and honoured, particularly, you know, to have Alison um, approach me and to be able to collaborate with Alison as an editor, um, who I think, it, it really showed the difference for me when you are 
um, working with another Aboriginal person who has an organisational role in putting that together. And I, I really felt that Alison was really um, com compassionate and gentle and, you know, didn't sort of expose me to like the sort of like strenuous pressures of publishing. You know, I've worked with other publishers that are like, this is the deadline and this is the date and we need it in on this time and blah. And, you know, I actually took my poem home um, and sat down with my Nana and read it to her and said, do you, do you, do you support it? Have I, you know, explained things well in this poem? Um, does it, you know, does it have my Nana's tick of approval? And that took time because I was living in Melbourne and my Nana's in Darwin and I flew home to see her and, you know, it wasn't so easy as just sending off emails and, you know, meeting dead deadlines, you know, air quote, like it, it required cultural protocol and protocol and approval by my family and to work with an Aboriginal person who understood that and who respected that and gave me the space and time to make sure that every word that I put onto that page, I stood by and my family stood by. I haven't experienced that before. Um, so it makes a really big difference. And I want to say Malika, you were talking before about people mispronouncing your name and your poems about saying your name correctly, say my name. Yeah. And you did just say, just ask me. So can mm. I ask you now how I should pronounce your name correctly? So it, it, it has, I think it has four um, sounds to it. So Mel, Air, so Mele, and then Ika, Malaika. So when you mm, oh, when you mix the Air um, and the E, it makes a, a lay sound, so Malaika. Malaika. Mm, Malaika. I hope I got that right. Mm. How did you feel when you were approached to publish your poem? Uh, so uh, I I can't say oh, there's there's a whole story to that. Um, <laughs> um and Alison can um chime in uh, when they want. We're here for the stories, bring them on. <laughs> um at the time um before I was contacted about um, the poem I actually put a call out um, about an internship um, in publishing if anyone was doing one and Alison had reached out and told me that um, there was an internship um, for this book um, so I got to put the poems together I collated them all in um, a doc uh, document uh, for UQP um, and before I introduced myself um I was told that my poem was in the book and I was like oh um I didn't know that um but yeah it was really it was it was surreal because I was sitting at the desk and um I was like oh <laughs> um I was introduced um oh, hello. <laughs> oh, sorry I was introduced as That's cute. um uh, introduced to the job but also told that um, my work was going to be in the book so it was both like hectic to get the internship but also to find out that my poetry was going to be in the book so yeah mm. we've just got an extra little guest who's appeared who's yeah. this uh, this is my little sister um she's how old are you do you weigh okay okay that's english wow yeah um yeah she's wow she likes coming in every time I have a zoom I think she knows um <laughs> when I'm on zoom because I'll be talking to myself and she always wants to come in and just tell the whole world who she is 
Well, welcome. Yeah. The more the merrier. <laughs> She's adorable. Thank you. Hello. Hello. <laughs> oh, still in the show. Hello. Um, but Malika had such a yeah a crucial part of putting the the collection together, and I actually didn't know um, that that's how you found out. I'm so sorry that that was the process that met you. It would have been, I don't know, um, maybe a bit surprising. That is probably a failure, I guess, on my part. I might have to go back and think about no, you're that process no, again. I think it was just it was just surreal in the sense that. Um, it was surreal in the sense that whilst we were doing introductions, um, yeah, we got I got asked, um, and I was like, oh yeah, like um, that was yeah, I don't know, it was just very yeah, different. Yeah, <laughs> I was like, I got a job and I'm in this book. What? Yeah, <laughs> that's pretty great. Like that's a that's a double whammy of goodness. Yeah. Mm. And Alison, you have a poem in the book as well. Was that a strange experience commissioning yourself in a collection? Yeah, I asked if I should be in it and they said yes, um, but it still feels weird. So I definitely, um, yeah, I don't know. I, it was, I didn't want to be a big noter when I put it in, um, but also um, I didn't want my only role in the text to be kind of this omniscient curator. Like I really had to show that I had skin in the game, if that makes sense. That's a really crude way of saying it, but like I didn't want to misrepresent myself as someone who was um, looking in on this space but wanted to show that I was involved and that um, these poems had a relationship both owing to Mob, who had kind of um, done the massive critical work beforehand to make stuff like this possible, um, but also that the work had an obligation to continue on um, with not only the, like the next generation of poets, but to kind of continue that circular legacy. It wasn't just, because I think when people think of poetry, if they're not kind of engaged in the literary world or the poetic community, they might just think of, either performance poetry or poetry on a page, but you also commissioned or collated song lyrics and a whole bunch of different ways, kind of oral poems that have gone in there. Some have footnotes that are like, this should have been read orally. If you have a moment, mm. um, read it out loud. And I thought that was really beautiful. How important was it for you to expand it beyond the page? So include words that are presented in other forms. Yeah, so important. I mean, um, to centre poetry on the page is a total disservice to how poetry is experienced um, by so many of us. Um, and I say that as a, a page poet, I think uh, Lani Okamaleka both have more experience as performance poets, so maybe they might be better equipped to answer this question. But um, I just wanted to acknowledge the diversity of the form um, that we not only have expertise in the substance of the poems that we write, but we are innovating and developing form and technique um, in, yeah, myriad ways that reflect how mob engage with poetry differently. Mm, yeah, I agree. Like, 
like full disclosure, I don't. Um, <laughs> um, I only started performing poetry at the end of 2018. Um, yeah, and I've been performing poetry since then, but I still find, I think I find it so, for me, it, it's the truest form that I can express my work through, like spoken word, in the sense that orating my words lets, allows me to storytell in a way that I can't really do on paper. I can't really do in English. I can't really, you can't see my face when I, uh, on, the, on the page. You mm. can't see the emphasis that I provide on the page. You can't see the way that I move um, on the page. So it's very different. And I think storytelling for me has always been an experience um, in the sense that I rather um, perform live and experience it firsthand rather than um, providing um, words on paper. Mm. Um, I mean, I'm deadly both ways. But um, I I really prefer um, talking because I don't know that there's this sense of like home when you see another black fella put like tell their story to you, mm. tell their tell their home to you, talk about their life to you, rather than trying to work it out yourself on the page. Mm. So I think the the difference in storytelling is so beautiful and I take away a little bit of everything um, in both, like in different ways from every form. So yeah, I hope that makes sense. But that's how, that's how I, I really, that's why I really love storytelling because it's just like, you can tell me a story anyway and I'll walk away different. Um, if you told me the story, I would have walked away different from you writing the story. So yeah. Bunny, do you agree? What's your experience been like? Um, yeah, ab absolutely. Um, I, I really enjoy um, performing poetry. I really being able to able to deliver it with the emotion that I intended for the poem. And I guess that's sort of like the, the, the clearest demonstration of my intent because it's from me directly. And yet at the same time, I feel like there's a level of safety that we can kind of get through that distance, distance of um, poetry in print where we don't have to take on the emotional labor or the emotional response of someone. And I mean, that's so prevalent amongst white Australians to be resistant and violent and um, insensitive to Aboriginal people and what we experience and our histories. So I think at the same time, there is value in having that distance through the through the page. Um, I've had some <laughs> real strange things said to me after performing poetry. Um, so I also appreciate the print, but yeah, it's nice as well to have the human to human, to human connection through performance poetry, absolutely. When I was setting up, I was eavesdropping on Alison and Malika's conversation and you were talking about something very similar about having people come up to you after you perform and kind yeah. of dumping their white guilt on you almost. In a, yeah. in, that's my, that's my crude interpretation. That wasn't your words mm. at all. But Yeah. It was just like you'll perform. Because for me, when I perform, I always think about 
the other black scholars in the room because mm. it's just like my poetry is written for them it's for them in mind I keep them in mind when I write mm. so when when non-black people come up to me and they try to dump their emotional like emotions on me in the sense that they want to they want me to um re- resolve them mm. like, I can't resolve you from nothing <laughs> um I'm so sorry Jane. um but it's just like there's this expectation when of them coming up to you and being like I'm being honest now like I'm I'm so sorry that we did this and this and this and I was like it, like these things happen all the time and it's just like um I can't say thank you <laughs> because I'm not thankful <laughs> I I can't say I'm grateful because I'm not grateful but mm-hmm. this that's all you took away from it um I think it's something that non-black people have to like sit by themselves because it literally puts the work back on us again to be like yeah we forgive you yeah you're deadly don't um, <laughs> and it's just like you have to you you really have to do the work by yourself because it's always because I I started performing when I was like my late teens and it was just like I was a young follower mm-hmm. and I had a lot of adult being like oh wow like you're gonna change the world and I was like, maybe, nah. um, but it shouldn't be up to me. Like, it should be a collective, like, yeah, a collective thing. Because a lot of people only, the way that, look, I could go on and on. Please and do. On. <laughs> but basically, it's just, it's tiring in the sense that when I do perform spoken word, or I just go up on stage and start talking, and I come off and non-black people come up to me, they always just have questions that I wish that they just kept to themselves or that they could have just easily just Googled. Don't. Mm. Um, but it's just, yeah, they literally don't realise that they're putting us through, a, they're re-traumatising us when we come off and we're feeling good, good and we've just healed collectively with our own people in the audience and they come up to us and then they, they're just like wow like you, you showed us that we're really privileged and I'm just like um did it really take you a poem to realize that like mm. come on now like you've lived how long in this world and the poem taught you that you were privileged like there's this it's just yeah it's very tiring and you get tired of it but I stick around because of the fact that I love performing for Mm. black fellas because every time after I have to put up with the non-black people and the black fellas come in they're just like wow I really cried and I was like I know I couldn't look at you (laughs) (laughs) because I would have been crying too because it's it's really a healing moment storytelling is so healing because it's really it solidifies the fact that you're not alone Mm. which is what I always it it's a feeling that always creeps up on you like you're you're the only person in the world that feels this and you, you get in this dark place but when I perform poetry and other followers are like I feel that way too I've always felt like that I just never had the words I've never had the vocabulary mm. to express it and I always tell them yeah you've always had the vocabulary you don't have to follow the western colonial way of expressing yourself like, mm. 
this is this is it this is how we express ourselves so yeah that's that's how I feel Mm. there's a number of tensions there that I think run through the entire collection and stuff things that you were saying one of them was um in Ali Cobby Eckerman's essay she mentions about being around a campfire and sharing stories and then throwing them into the fire and that was how they existed and then as a writer and publisher kind of dealing with the tension of what I just wrote for my community and to perform amongst ourselves and what I should publish do you go through that individually as poets yourself are there things that you write that you're like no this is for for us and for me and for our collective healing or do I want to publish this or is it not something that that you consider because ultimately if you want to make a profession out of writing or any kind of performance work you have to do it publicly Hmm. or is that question too annoying (laughs) I'll answer that quickly in the sense that a lot of people so for us and I like I speak from experience and I speak because it's always in the back of my mind when I write and when I produce something um, I always have to think about um, my family my people and cultural protocol like non-black people don't have to think about that um, on this country on this continent um, like they don't have to think about how it will um, how it will reflect our ancestors or how our ancestors will interpret it um, but yeah it's it's a weird like I think it's very weird in the sense that I'll see like white authors write about us and do it in the most mediocre way and it's just like wow you think you're deadly and you don't have to do that much but for us when we have to write about ourselves or if we have to write indigenous scholars into our book or poem we have to like we ask my old people ask my friends I, I go out and talk to the community I reflect and it takes ages to even like produce um a proper like poem if it's about someone else um or a, like if I include indigenous characters in one of my manuscripts it's just we have to reflect and non-indigenous people don't do that at all yeah, Lana Yuki, you mentioned that as part of your process with the poem that was published in Firefront. Um, and I was creepily lurking on your Instagram as part of my research, which okay. once I say that out loud, that's really creepy, but I was just like, it's part of the research. <laughs> and I noticed that you posted the Firefront and you were talking about your experience of having it published. And you mentioned that not surprisingly, this poem got very little attention from non-Aboriginal people. The colony is addicted to our suffering, to our stories of hardship, Mm. to fulfill their fantasies of the meek, tired Aborigine. How much does that relate to what was just being said about kind of practice and protocol and your own experience with your poem? Um, it's, it's like, yeah, that, this poem, um, it's really only ever been um, Aboriginal people and Aboriginal women more specifically that have come up to me after a performance and said that poem that you performed, like, you know, I really connected with that. I really, I really heard that and, and understood, you know, that poem. 
And then I have, you know, non-Aboriginal editors and publishers, you know, approaching me for particular work that is just so far from my, like, list of priorities. They're going for the funny poem, for the lighthearted poem, you know, and not the poems that I want to publish, not the poems that are important to me. And so when Alison approached me specifically and said, hey, you know, that poem that you performed at one time, you know, would love it to be in this, in, in this collection. It just meant so much, so much for my priorities to be seen for what they were. Um, and, you know, like I said, it, there is a protocol that comes with being published. Anything that I put forward to go into print, to go out into the world, I show my family first. I get them to read it. I get their feedback. And even just recently, I wrote a poem. Um, and before sending it to be published, I, I sent it to a cousin who was coincidentally there with my auntie. And, um, and they read it and they said, oh, Narcas, like you've got it mixed up. That's not actually one of our stories you know, that you're talking about there, you should write about this instead. And so I went back and I edited that poem and I prioritised the story that they wanted to be told, yeah. um, that my family wanted to be told, because my poems and my poetry, that's, that's the purpose for me, is for furthering my family and my country and my people. And it's not about me alone. It's about all of us coming together on that page. And I... I need to have their permission before I go forward with anything. Um, and I, you know, I was on a panel once and there was this, <laughs> this white boy that was sort of like, I just think that we need to be careful about the word integrity. There's no such thing as integrity in poetry and writing because you always edit it. So it's never raw and it's never real. And I was just sort of like, that sat, that sat really wrong with me. And I couldn't figure out why until I realized that the editing process for me is where I seek my integrity is where I sit back and say, what am I actually doing here? What is this for? Who is this for? What is this about? And how do I make sure that it lives up to the expectations of my family and my country? And both of you had, we talked about the slight footnotes that are kind of littered throughout, but you both had dedications before yours. Did you want to talk about the choice to add that at the front of your poem? Mm. Um. So every time I... I've actually performed Say My Name um, as a sing single word. I always yarn about the meaning of the words. Um, so, um, so I'll yarn about it today. So, um, so basically, when I, before I was born, my father had a dream about my name and about me. So I was given that name from my father. Um, which coincidentally has a me has meanings um, on both sides of my family. So my name um, holds meaning um, on one side of my family and on the other, um, which I find beautiful because it's just like it, it was a Tongan name, but it still has a meaning um, in both bloodlines. Mm. Um, and for me to not tell a, a proper story about how my name came to be and how one of my great-grandmothers was named after uh, had the same name um it felt it didn't feel right not to say anything or mention anything mm -hmm. so I always it, it was a privilege to like be like we have the opportunity to say something so I dedicated it to my mother um he wanted to give me another name, but my dad was like, no, I had a dream. <laughs> I had a dream. 
And um, I thank my mum for letting my father name me and for my father for naming me. And I thank my mum again for letting me to keep that, uh, for letting me keep the name. Um, and then I thank um, my nan and my papa, um, Sydney nan, nan and papa, um, because my whole life, um, my family have always been the only people who've said my name correctly mm. and with love. Mm. Um, and for me, uh, it was important to acknowledge the love um, that's always been associated with my name. Mm. So it's, it's always important to acknowledge people um, with my poems, which is what I always do before performing. Um, but on the written page to acknowledge them beforehand was, yeah, it was really special. Mm. Um, my poem, Remember, was, I was really trying to combat the, um, the erasure of um, Aboriginal women in the, the narratives that are told about us. Um, and I just think it's outrageous that, you know, the, the images that we receive of Aboriginal women, even just like in the paintings, you know, we're always just like sitting on the ground, like wrapped in a blanket. And it's like, you can't tell me that during a war, an Aboriginal woman didn't pick up a spear and fight, you know? <laughs> like, and even just looking at Aboriginal women today, like we're fierce, we're always at the front of protest, we're always at the front of change, we're always at the front of, of movement and energy. You mm. can't tell me that that hasn't been happening for the past 250 years. <laughs> like, I'm not buying it. Um, and even the Aboriginal women that do make it into history become footnotes or become a paragraph, you know, become a wife or, you know, become, a, you know, the sole survivor. And the complexity of our stories are taken away from us. Um, and so I, with Remember, I, I try to retell the stories of um, three Aboriginal women, adding that trying to add back in that complexity of, of resistance and energy and fierceness um, and reflecting on my life now, today, trying to survive that same war, trying to make steps towards our survival. And I think about what they must have been thinking and feeling at their times, the quiet moments that they have in bed, you know, feeling overwhelmed. Um, and one of the women that I, I add dimension to is my great-great-grandmother, Alien Double, who um, was one of the few surviving members of our tribe um, after her family were um, poisoned. Um, and that is my grandmother's grandmother. Alien Double is my grandmother's grandmother. And if I look at that, that lineage of survival, you know, my grandmother is another another link in that chain leading to my my existence and my ability to resist now um, so it was really important for me to acknowledge my nana um, and all of the work that she's done as a poet and as, a, as an activist her whole life um, it I think was important to to sort of lay out that chain of survival amongst generations and Alison, when you were approaching writers, did you say to them, you have this space if you wanted to add anything, if there was an addendum, a footnote, any context that you wanted to give, is that something that you approached them with? 
Yeah, that was something that um, I have to say, I don't think I approached everybody with the option of the footnote, but um, any amendments that they wanted to make to poems that had already been published, any contextualization that they thought was necessary, um, I think I made it clear that that was possible. <laughs> um, I, yeah. The curatorial process is something that um, I definitely learnt along the way. It's something that I would do differently now, I think, um, having been through this experience, knowing that, um, and I don't mean this with, um, I guess, any animosity towards UQP, but like the difference between what it meant to work with a publisher who had hard deadlines, who wanted to do stuff in a particular way, and then having to just, um, again, with no animosity, be pushing kind of back against them all the time and be like, no, this is how we're going to do it. No, this is how we're going to do it. And realising that there was a lot more power to push back than I thought I had. Um, I definitely would have done things a little bit differently, including by outlining a great deal more of authorial control because I'd, I'd assumed that because all of the poems in Firefront had been quote unquote like published somewhere else, been performed somewhere else, had been distributed, they'd been released to a black public. Um, and I'd assumed in those relationships by the process that Mob would have published it in the way that they wanted in that time, even though some of these poems are actually quite old and at a time when Mob didn't have as much um, power in the publishing industry as they did now. Um, not that that's a lot. Um, and so having the chance for people to actually situate their poems in relation to one another in a way that made sense for them, in a way that also fulfilled the responsibilities while also holding it as a record of what it was, that was the kind of complexity, I think, um, that I was... I don't know, not bridging against, kind of like just, just sitting in, that was it. It's never going to fully be resolved. I mean, how can you resolve something like this in the English tongue, in, you know, the pages of an <laughs> institution um, that, you know, has been publishing for a really long time using stolen wealth from the Mobsy's land it was on. Um, these are things that we are constantly working through. Yeah, one of the interesting, I guess, paradoxes to use a bit of a wanky word um in the book and I think in poetry that is very interesting is using English and I loved how Stephen Oliver talked about English being a tricky language because it's used to trick people how do you resolve or kind of work with that in your own work with, with that tension question for anyone using the English language. I hate English. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's one answer. <laughs> I, I genuinely hate English. Um, and when I do my work, I purposely... So in the editing process, um, my poem, I, I thank my mothers and father. And um, I, I think that was confusing. <laughs> um, but for me, I was thanking my aunties and my dad. Um, and my aunties are my, my mothers. Um, and because kinship ways, I only have uncles. Um, so I only thank my father. Um, so it was, I think it was weird for them to try to work out how to say that in English. And I was like, 
that's how you say it mm-hmm. like <laughs> that's how you say it um so I think a lot of people just don't realize that we can say deadly things in English but they're going to have to sit with the fact that we're not going to use it the way that they want us to mm-hmm. um because I will a lot of people will pull me up with spelling and how I phrase things and it's just like I did that on purpose mm-hmm. okay like you're gonna have to sit with that because <laughs> I'm not gonna <laughs> change it um so it's that process of like telling them that one this is how black people speak to that I have no respect for how you're how you tell stories how western colonial ways like colonial ways of storytelling is prioritized in um these spaces so i will have no respect for that um i can tell stories however i want um you can't tell me nothing um because i'm the storyteller don't um and the whole fact that i will purposely also just yeah not spell anything right not use grammar right um and when i do use language it's always like oh, I don't know how to say it but it's literally like an inside joke between like everyone else who can speak it and and everyone who can't speak it has to sit there mm. and gam and laugh like they know what what I just said like mm, you don't know but <laughs> that's deadly that you think you do um so it's this process of being like I'm gonna use my language however I want because again this everything I write is for black fellows so why would I write in a way that has to prioritize like even the vocabulary that I use I make sure that I don't use words that I like people are like oh wow I don't know the meaning to that and I'm like yeah because I'm not going to use it um it I always prioritize how I grew up how for me as well like being off topic as well um English isn't my first language why was I why would I use a language that I wasn't born with mm. um to tell stories that weren't told in that language like why would I do that but yeah yeah it's a hard thing to navigate because I mean English is is my first language and it you know using English is one of my strongest skills it's what I make my my living off of it's what I use to further my message um and it's not really <laughs> where I'd like to be. And I'm, I'd like us to, I know that we will continue to, stay, to take steps um, moving back towards our languages. And it's something that I try to bring into my writing as much as possible. Um, and there's a lot of mistranslation. Like there are a lot of um, Aboriginal values, Aboriginal concepts mm. that don't translate into English. And then there's an opportunity to misinterpret I mean, recently um, I had a poem in a in a song that has the opportunity to have like quite an international audience, and I realised that when I talk about country, <laughs> mm. it could be interpreted in a nas- in a sort of like nationalistic mm. way, and that it could be sort of like more government. You know, if I'm like, yeah, the spirits of our countries, and that's not what I meant. Mm. <laughs> you know, and I I've had to really reflect and think about how I can communicate more clearly what it is that I'm trying to say and moving beyond the limitations of what English provides us yeah. with. And I think really the, it's about going back to using our, our languages for those terms. Mm. Um, and if you get it, you get it. And if you don't, you don't. Yeah. Um, 
but you know what then at the same time it's i think it's an english is an interesting tool for i think like global solidarity work amongst other people who have been colonized um and to be able to to maintain that connection today mm-hmm. yeah yeah i also just want to add quickly that english doesn't like adding on to that english doesn't have ways to express certain feelings as well like it's like we they can misinterpret values but when it also comes to feeling and connection to like our spirit like spirituality they have no idea how to talk about that because there's no words for it and you try to come up with words for it so you try to mix your own language into English but it still it still doesn't work so English is so limiting in the sense that it will never truly encompass the black experience on this country because it was never used to do that yeah <laughs> and and language shapes societal values mm. and and ways of thinking and ways of being so when we have been colonized you know the language played such a huge part in that mm. it shaped what we were able to communicate yeah 100%. and how that then goes on to affect you know sort of like group culture Mm. to be able to move back to our languages it will again reshape us and our values and solidify them in like day-to-day societal systemic changes mm. speaking of words i have to ask the inevitable question that alison i'm sure you've been asked in literally every single interview the title firefront became it, well, from what i've read it was before the most recent bushfire catastrophe um can you talk a little bit about why you retained that title you did write about it in your introduction and in the acknowledgement section but I think it's just an interesting thing for people who might be coming to it fresh and yeah yeah so firefront the the title was actually just a working title to kind of represent the subversive power um, that First Nations poetry has, but also the the fuel base that it comes from. There's a lot of like um, contemporary white fellas talking about black poetry that have like just manifested in the last five years, and it's like led by young people, which mm. we know is absolutely bullshit. Mm. Um, and so to kind of talk about poetry in this way, and also to acknowledge that we're having um, a moment where. Um, all of the work of um, our ancestors, but also the literary predecessors who worked really, really hard to give us this fuel. Um, that the moment's kind of finally happening. The fire front was like a, a thin line and now the wind has changed a little bit and now it's kind of equipped in its full power. Mm. So that was the, the governing metaphor, I guess, if you like, behind Firefront. Um, and by the time that the, the devastating bushfire season that we had last year and early into this year, Uh, came around we had the opportunity maybe to change it Um, but I thought in addition to being kind of an apt metaphor as it was outside of this context for First Nations poetry it also highlights like why we do it like what's at stake Mm. when mob don't control our own affairs when mob um, are denied uh, caring for our own country um, and so it kind of stayed and that acknowledgement went in um, that 
the, the devastating bushfire season kind of demonstrates that poetry is part of this broader political mm -hmm. ecology that's pushing um, for, for land rights and for control and for um, the meaningful recognition of sovereignty um, as a, a legal reality, but also as a reality that if the settler colony doesn't begin to acknowledge sovereignty, which exists whether or not they say it does, um, these are the things, the escalating crises that are going to keep happening. I think it's time now for our arrogant art section where we answer listener questions with an authority we don't have. It's an exercise in imposter syndrome for all of us. Today's question is from Sarah. Sarah asks, I'm used to working collaboratively with lots of people, so I'm finding it hard to be distanced from my team and collaborators right now. But I also feel overwhelmed by constantly emailing and online meetings to keep in touch and keep things going. Do you have any advice for artists working collaboratively at this point in time to help ease the load and make it fun rather than laborious? So obviously we're on Zoom now and we're recording this a bit differently. This is how a lot of collaborative processes are taking place when we're used to meeting in the same room or if you're a performance poet, performing to a room full of people, which is maybe something we're not able to do so much now. Um, do you have any advice, anyone, on how to make it more fun than just emailing and just Zooming or how to really lean into those things and make them fun and easier, I guess? I'm going <laughs> to no, be... shaking the head. Nah, that's it. <laughs> I'm going to be a little bit blunt. Um, Go for it. I just think that it is really important to collaborate with people that you trust personally and politically. It makes it a lot more fun and it just makes it a lot more safe. Um, and so, you know, to have Alison approach me, it was a hard yes <laughs> straight away. Um, and sure enough, you know, trusting that, that decision and, and trusting that feeling of trust made the experience a lot more enjoyable, you know, but um, safer for me and my work beyond just the relationship that I have with Alison. I know that I can trust where the, the work is going, the, the collection that'll be in and the context that'll be received in. And I just think it's important for mob to work with mob and for people to work with people that they trust because there's a lot of snakes out there <laughs> that really just want to use you and use your work and use your culture and make money off you. So that would be my hot take. God, I can't even tell you. Yeah, I can't even tell you how much I'm nodding along to that one. Yeah. Uh, any other advice? I just back up what Sis said 100% because there are, there are going to be people who will try to use you as a token, token black mm. for not just their shows, but their panels, like their staff. So be 100% aware of that. And yeah. If you wanna, if you wanna do it, do it. But also make sure that you bring other black colors into that space to be like, we're gonna, we're, we're gonna take over this place. Don't. But yeah, like make sure. Mm. Oh, also, yeah, hundred percent work with other black colors, hundred mm. percent, because it's a very different experience to working with non-black colors because it's just like, I don't know, it's like working with family. Um, family that you love it's like working with your favorite cousin basically so <laughs> basically now you have high expectations don't blame me um no yes um yeah make sure make sure yeah that's all I have Alison do you have any advice yeah I mean if it's 
um, I just want to kind of back up what's been said already, but if this is like contained specifically to the pandemic, um, I think like as um, mob working in the arts, like there's a um, well, mob working anywhere, there's always this kind of like pressure um, that's coming from outside our community to, to produce and to truth tell that's not necessarily for our own ends. And like, I don't, I've noticed it kind of intensify maybe over this last little period. Um, and you don't have to do it. Like if um, something like this is like, if you're feeling uh, pressured or it's not um, conducive to what you want to be doing, if it doesn't feel right in your gut, you have a right to, to refusal. And even if that's kind of, I hope this doesn't sound tacky, but like looking after yourself and your well-being and that of your family and your community, um, mm. if all of those things come um, at the expense of writing or collaborating or doing creative stuff, like that's okay. Um, mm. And it's something that we're not told very often that, you know, yeah. there are things that are more important than this and sometimes it's okay to let them happen. Yeah. You can say no to so mm -hmm. okay. Yeah. Mm. You can say no. And I think there's a certain amount of leverage as well. Like I was asked to speak on a panel recently and I was just sort of like, what has this person interviewing me got anything to do with my work? I was like, I want an, an Aboriginal person. Like, why are you not getting an Aboriginal person to... Mm. Mm. talk to me on this panel and they did it <laughs> you know um and like maybe you won't always get that response but if you can just sort of be like I'm uncomfortable with this mm. I need you to do this you know got a little bit of leverage to work with sometimes mm. and the, yeah use that although people <laughs> should have those ideas anyway if they're coming to you that's the issue like that goes back really? to and I mean like there's no festival without us right mm. like there's no book without us so <laughs> 100%. So I did want to uh, present you with the opportunity to give a Sisteria shout out to any piece of art or culture you've been enjoying recently. And I know that a few people have been kind of locked away. I'm in Melbourne um, on lockdown. Um, but I want to hear, I've got nothing. I've got nothing to recommend. All I'm doing <laughs> is sitting in this little box, talking to wonderful people like you, editing and doing boring office work. So please give me good things to listen to, to read, to watch. Alison, do you want to kick us off? Oh, yeah. I'm, I haven't actually watched this yet, but I have planned an entire weekend around it that I'm really looking forward to. Um, I May Destroy You, which I think is going to be the 2020 um, mm -hmm. well, like text TV show yeah. work of art. I am so excited. So fuck it's so good. Okay. Sorry, I watched it. Oh, yeah. <laughs> You'll be all excited. I've got to hold out until Saturday. It's nice to have something to look forward to as well. That's mm. great. That's true. Okay. Mm. Um, I have I have a lot of recommendations, James. <laughs> um I so I've been watching Love Um Lovecraft Country. Um it's this sci-fi type of take um uh of uh well, what they've described it as, uh, actually, I don't know how to describe it. Just watch it. Um, it. There's a lot of black people in it. I love the fact, like, and we get to tell um, our stories in a way that prioritizes our own. Um, well, African Americans get to prioritize the way that they tell their stories about their ancestors and um, ghosts, which I really loved. Um, and the next one that I think. Um, 
so I have two books, um, actually three. But so basically the deep by River Solomon is about um, the ancestors of the um, of slaves who of those enslaved who um, jumped ship and drowned and turned into mermaids. Um, so those are their ancestors and basically it tells you the life of these mermaids that live under the sea now. Um, so that's by River Solomon. They're really um, cool. Um, Pet by um, Akweke um, Amendi. I'm pretty sure I mispronounced the name. Um, but that book is about um, a trans girl who's mute and who chases down um, a monster that um, came alive from their parents' um, painting. Um, her mum, Bitta, her name is, um, painting. So she chases that monster down. And it's like set in this world that prioritizes abolition, like they've abolished prisons and it's so beautiful. Um, I like you don't want to finish it because I still want to live in that world. And Clap When You Land um, is a story told in verse um, by Elizabeth um, Acevedo. Um, and it's about these two girls who had lost their father um, in a plane crash um, and then mysteriously find out that their sisters and both their, the father who had passed away had two different families in two different countries. So, yeah. Mm, very interesting all very, sound great you're yeah. giving me some things to do thank you <laughs> you're welcome Maniuk, what was yours what's your shout out um i have two um firstly um my nana kathy mills is actually uh publishing her first collection of oh. poetry <laughs> yeah which will be published through um, bachelor institute and she'll be launching it at the um, northern territory writers festival amazing in october which i'm just so excited and like so proud um and so i'm really excited to get my hands on a copy um mm. and nana's been writing poetry for literal decades has been writing about our our history and our you know been sharing culture and just been so incredible um she's so she's so strong so i'm really excited so everyone should go out and buy a copy and what was your nana's name again kathy mills great yeah um and then the second one is like a little bit of a shameless plug but um i've collaborated with um, a very very good friend of mine and we're releasing a song together which will be on spotify september 17th um and it's sort of in the current I guess like political reflection um, of policing um, and state sanctioned violence reflecting on the connection between what's happening in the Philippines with um, their current ruler Duterte and I guess you know looking for connection and solidarity with um, Aboriginal people and recognizing the the relationship and the connection between what all oppressed people are going through globally it's all related um and so that'll be out on spotify her name's lucy vano the song's called silence is um september oh, 17th exciting yeah. how exciting i actually mm. did have one shout out and that's it everyone based on this conversation i'm sure you're already clicking on to order it now but go buy firefront it's excellent mm. as this conversation proved listen to these amazing voices mm. go read some um, thank you very much for joining me today. This has been so wonderful. I feel so enlightened. Oh, <laughs> she's back. <Yeah. laughs>
Do you want to listen? Guest star. Who knows? I'm whispering to you. Tip, you want tips? Don't we all? Me too. Why does she have to whisper that, though? That was like a secret. You get your chips. You want to go get your chips? Adorable. (laughs) All right. Thank you so much, everyone. Thank you. Bye. Thank you. you. Bye. Bye. Sisteria is supported by the Melbourne City Council Arts Grants Program and recorded on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nations. We pay our respects to the elders past and present and to the elders of all the lands this podcast reaches. Subscribe to Sisteria everywhere and follow us at SisteriaPod. Links to everything discussed in the episode are available at SisteriaPodcast.com. Our theme music is by Rainbow Chan. The song is called Last and it's from her album Spacings. Thanks so much for listening. Stay safe and we hope you tune in again soon.